Imagine with me for a moment the, uh, the strangest story of thievery that perhaps you'd ever heard. Strange because nothing was actually stolen. It was Christmas time at a downtown department store. The place was all decked out with decorations, the lights, the tinsel, the garland. There was an eager employee who was supposed to close down that evening, but on the way to a Christmas party, forgot to lock one of the doors. <clears throat> as a result of that, a thief, or perhaps we could categorize them more as a, a prankster, decided that they would go into the department store. But the thing was, they didn't steal a thing. As a matter of fact, they, they did something very odd. They left everything exactly where it was sitting, but they switched the price tags. <laughs> so a pair of $400 Justin boots was now only worth about five bucks from the flip-flops beside them. The Rolex watch, worth about $600, was now only about $30, swapped with the Casio timepiece beside it. No offense to those of you wearing a Casio watch this morning. <laughs> Everything that had been given a high value was switched for something for, that had a very low value. Now, you can imagine what the cash register would have been like the next day. There was confusion. Why was this happening? How could this be? And the reason I tell you that this morning is because something very similar happened in our own world. You see, Satan broke in. And what he did was he swapped the price tags on things that God had originally set. So instead of having a high value for things like peace and love and hope, the value was set on things like power and fame and looks and money. So those things had a much higher value than God had ever intended. But Satan had swapped the value of things. And as a result, Creation is suffering. Because as a result of that, all of these negative feelings came pouring into the world. Jealousy because we see what someone else has that we don't have. We hang our hearts on the likes that we can get on Snapchat and Facebook more so than the reality that God loves us personally, individually, and salvifically. Because, you see, the values got turned around. And instead of peace and joy and hope, we're left with despair and anxiety. How would this be changed? What are God's values on the world? What is it that he places a high price tag on? And how does the Christmas story reveal to us that which God truly values? We're going to be continuing. This is our last Sunday of Advent. And we're walking through the Christmas narratives 
the foretelling of the coming of Christ, the announcement of the coming of Christ. We looked at that last week with Zechariah and the coming of John the Baptist who would herald this king that was to come. And this morning we're going to look at the birth narrative itself. We'll be in Luke chapter 2. We'll be in Luke chapter 2 looking initially at verses 1 through 7. We'll be working our way down through verse 14. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar, Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her, for, her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You may be seated. <clears throat> this morning, what I'd like to do is take a closer look at Luke chapter 2. We're going to start out in verses 1 through 7. We'll then move on to verses 8 through 14. The passage is divided up into two sections. First, you see the circumstances of Christ's birth, and then you see the reaction to Christ's birth. And as we go through this, we're going to look at three things that God values, three things that we see that God values in this passage. We re-enter the story now in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And what we see is this historical setting. It is miraculous how things are working out. We have seemingly random events that are going on. All of these things are pointing towards a specific time in a specific place. And we see it there in verse 1. A decree goes out from the Roman government uh, calling for this registration of citizens. <clears throat> this would have been for the purpose of assessing taxes. And Rome had sent this out. They were doing a census in a Jewish manner. This wasn't typically how they would do things. But frankly, they were trying to keep these Jews a little quiet. They didn't want to stir them up. They had seen bad things happen when you did that. So to appease them, they were going back to their hometowns to take place in this tax assessment, this census. Uh, Octavian, actually one of the more peaceful emperors, uh, was in charge at that time. So Luke is setting the scene by explaining who these leaders are, because again, these are seemingly random accidental moments, but all playing such an important part in the role of prophecy being fulfilled. A second leader then is mentioned in verse 2. Uh, Quirinius, he was an administrative official at the time. That would have put the date uh, before 6 AD. And then, according to verse 3, uh, this has set people in motion back to their hometowns. So the stage is now set. Mary and Joseph are on their way from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea and the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Things are moving. 
The decision to make this journey was significant. And it's not something that we want to just skirt by uh, because we can see there that David's father's Jesse was from Bethlehem. Uh, this was the birthplace of Christ. And this was foretold 700 years before this. In Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 700 years before the event occurs, it was foretold in the pages of Scripture that this was going to happen. I, ironically, Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, Christ was going to be born. Luke is making this connection that Christ is coming from the line of David, the line of kings. This is why he's heading back to the city of Bethlehem. Joseph is not alone on this journey. We get to verse 5. Mary is with him, even though she's pregnant, and it says the two are betrothed. Now, there's an element of scandal there because Luke is making it clear they're not married. This marriage has not yet been consummated. But Mary is carrying the Christ child. There's emphasis being made here on this. So then let's pause here for just a moment. Let's consider what's going on. Um, if, if you're here, ladies, and you have gone through a pregnancy, uh, recall what it was like in those, we'll call them the heaviest, the biggest of months that you experienced. Imagine your husband coming to you and say, you know, let's go on a trip. <laughs> and let's just leave the car behind. Let's just go it. Well, let's just saddle up one of the horses. And let's travel about 80 miles to this town that I'm from. You see, that's what's going on here. I can't imagine doing that. Now, oftentimes, Mary's portrayed as riding a donkey. That's, it could have been that way. It, it's not necessarily recorded in the scriptures that way, but it was a way that people traveled. It could have been an ox cart. It, it, it wasn't a, uh, an SUV with leather heated seats, that's for sure. This would have been an extremely uncomfortable journey. One that was determined by a government that they didn't elect. There was no vote to decide that Octavian was going to be the leader. But yet we see these very contrite steps of obedience that Mary and Joseph are taking to go on this journey. Obedience is one of the first things we see that God values. And it's not a comfortable obedience. As a matter of fact, it's a very uncomfortable obedience because this is the kind of obedience that God will often call us to. Now, if we, if we were to go to Romans 13, we would see that government institutes are institutes that God puts into place. And the passage there in Romans 13, 2, goes as far as to say that when you reject or disobey a governmental institution is as though you are, you are obeying that which God has put into effect. So God calls us to obedience. God values obedience. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be comfortable. Quite frankly, I don't like writing a check to the IRS. 
And admittedly, I have trouble with speeding. I've already told you all that. But that's the kind of obedience that God has called us to. That's one of the values that comes to the surface when we go through this birth narrative. So obey, even if it's uncomfortable. Don't forget what these two went through in obedience to the government and in obedience to God. The, quickly, the, the text then quickly moves to the events of verses 6 and 7. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So Mary, quite pregnant, had gone along on this trip. She accompanied her betrothed, the one to whom she was not yet married. And while they were there, it came time for her to give birth. It was her firstborn. It would have been painful. He would have had all the rights to inheritance. He's the son of God, wrapped in cloths that would have kept his arms and legs straight and stiff. Then the text says that he was laid in a manger. There was no place in the inn. Now, we oftentimes get the picture in our head, and, and it's been spoken of this way, that there was this mean, nasty innkeeper. And I remember hearing as a child, getting these thoughts in my head that he was sitting there behind a dirty desk with a short cigar in his mouth <laughs> and a dirty T-shirt. And in a nasty tone, he told them, just get out of here. There's no room for you here. Well, there's actually no mention of an innkeeper anywhere in the scriptures. You can, you can go through Matthew and Mark and Luke. It actually doesn't speak of the innkeeper anywhere. But can you see the humility going on here? Can you see what's happening? Can you see this, this picture that the God of the universe is now laying in a feeding trough of an animal? Fully God, the creator of the universe, our king laying in a manger. Christ was fully God and he was fully man. He retained his humanity up to the present time. He has eternally existed, but only now has put on humanity. You see, he retained that humanity and he was always God and he was always human. When he was walking on water, when he was doing miracles, he was still fully human. When he got tired, when he got hungry, he was still fully divine. Two natures in one person. And here we find him. There's a basilica, actually, that's built on this site. It's called the Church of Nativity. And if you've been to Israel, maybe you've, you've seen it. Uh, it could have been a cave, frankly. They're, they're really not sure. It could have been a stable. But it begs this question, why was God born in a room that was for animals? The one who could bring 
peace where there had been hostility, and you heard Shane say it so well, hostility between us and God, hostility between us and our fellow men, the one that could bring peace to all that, the one who could make a way to the heavenly throne rooms, had his very first throne room as a stable. None of us would have chosen this. None of us would have imagined something like this, but we see this picture of humility, and this note of humility is such a challenge to our culture. There was no sense in which Christ's arrival indicated greatness, or even necessarily deity, but he arrived in total humility. See, God is sending us a message that greatness isn't connected to a bank account. That greatness isn't connected to coming from a fantastic family, even though that can be a wonderful thing. But greatness has more to do with the inner person, the person himself, this life itself. And the birth of Christ displays God's own values by how the most powerful person entered into the world. So secondly, God values humility. God values humility. So, so we need to be humble. Y'all never forget, when my wife and I were living in, in Dallas, Texas, we were living in seminary housing at the time. And uh, a young woman had sent an email out to the entire building saying that she needed a pair of pants hemmed. And none of us had any money, so none of us could really afford to go to a tailor. So she sent this email out to the whole building. And a few days later, my wife went to her and said, so who was it that came and, and hemmed your pants? And she said, well, you're never going to guess who it was. It was this 94-year-old man who was living in our building by the name of Dwight Pentecost. Now, some of you may recognize that name. Some of you may not. Um, he wrote a book about the end times that sold about 250,000 copies. He had trained a lot of uh, incredible pastors at Dallas Seminary. He trained David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, Andy Stanley. Um, Tony Evans, they'd all come through his classes. And this was the guy who taught at Dallas Seminary for 60 years that showed up at her front door and said, she didn't know why he was there, showed up and said, well, I, I, I hear you need a pair of pants hemmed. And she said, yeah, she, and, and, and he said, well, how much do you need taken off? She said, oh, about that much. She said, well, he said, well, you got to mark them. We, we can't just... So she does these things. He takes the, the pants uh, back down to his own apartment. He lived in the building as well. By the way, at the time, he was, for the past 40 years, he worked for Dallas Seminary for $1 a year. He took the pants, he hemmed them, he ironed them, put them back on a hanger, and took them back up to this, this young lady. If there was anybody in that building that would have had an excuse to not have served in a way like this. It would have been Dwight Pentecost. By the way, he taught at Dallas Seminary until he was 99 years old. And if you ever made the mistake of going to him and saying, did you have to teach today? The first thing he would say was, I got to teach today. But what a picture of humility, of service. We're never too old or too good to be humble and to serve other people. That is the picture we have of our Savior, our King, being born in a room made for animals. 
not even made for human beings. So those are the simple, humble circumstances surrounding the coming of Christ. And now we move into this next section, this reaction of his coming. And there's some big questions that need to be answered, like, well, who is this going to be announced to? Who are the first people in the world that are going to hear about this event? Is it going to be the grandparents? Is it going to be like, you know, uh, world leaders, the most important, the higher echelons? I think you know where I'm going with this. So we now step into verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So we now turn away from the event itself, and we look at this proclamation. This is the third birth announcement. This is one not made to family members, and it's made to this group of men, and not just any men, but it's this group of shepherds. Now, i got to say, shepherds get a really bad rap. Uh, if you look at extra-biblical material, they're going to tell you all kinds of nasty things about shepherds. They were like in, in the same category of tanners and prostitutes. They were looked down on. They were considered ceremonially, un ceremonially unclean because they were in contact with animals all the time. However, when you go to the pages of Scripture, shepherds are very well thought of. If you go to the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David, they all had careers at one time as shepherds. And you go to the New Testament, Christ is referred to as the good shepherd. The church leaders are referred to as the shepherds. So in this story, I believe they are, they are reflecting every man. Now, they're certainly not the people that you would have um, invited to your house to impress your friends. They smelled. But this is the one to whom Christ's announcement is going to come to. They represent us all. Just pause for a moment and notice the commonness with which everything is happening. We have a young family. They had a child. We have shepherds. And at this point, if I was going to pick a Christmas carol to describe what has been going on, it would be silent night. Things have been quiet. They've been sort of ethereal and holy. Now all of that is about to change. It's no longer going to be a silent night. It's going to be, as a matter of fact, anything but silent because in this next set of verses, something both terrible and wonderful is going to happen. And we step into verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. I think angels probably get tired of saying this. <laughs> fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those 
with whom he is pleased. We no longer have a silent night. We have, oh, holy night. We have falling on your knees. These were men who had never seen fireworks. They'd never seen a helicopter. They'd never seen searchlights. And this is now what they have. The glory of God shining around them, angels singing in the heavens. The source of light is heaven itself. It's this glory of God. I don't even know what heavenly light is going to look like. But it's shining all around them. This is the way one artist has depicted this event. You've got these um, angels up here, and you've got these terrified shepherds cowering over in the corner. An encounter with God is going to be a frightening experience. But it only starts with fear. And I like the way Daryl Bach says this. He says, The initial encounter with God or its messenger frightens most who experience it. But the grace of God is such that this fear is quickly removed as an obstacle. God wishes to interact with his creation. He doesn't wish to be silent and far off. He's... This is in conflict with people who subscribe to something called deism, that God just created the world and wound it up and then just let it go, and he's been distant and far off ever since. No! We believe in Emmanuel. We believe in God with us. And he's entered the story. God wishes to interact with that which he has created. Good news and joy have penetrated the darkness. And that which Satan has disvalued and turned upside down, God is now turning right side up. This awesome message came to the most unlikely of people. There was nothing exceptional about the shepherds. They weren't the well-educated, the well-dressed, the well-smelling. They didn't have jobs that were well thought of. But this is the, this is the group to whom God has chosen to announce his coming. And that leads us to this third value of God. God values all kinds of people. But do we? Do we value people the same way God is making evident in this story? I'll never forget a conversation I had with two friends of mine, Abraham and Johannes. And we're sitting there talking. Uh, Abraham is from Bangalore, India. Johannes is from Kenya. And there's Chad, the Irish Caucasian. And we're sitting there talking, and we all three look very different. And we all say, we, we, we made the same admission that none of us want to take lightly the propensity that we have to look down on someone because of who they are, or their background, or race. All three of us, representing really three different races, were saying, you know, I would hate to think that I would ever be prejudiced, but at the same time, I never want to underestimate my ability to be evil. Because you see, God values all kinds of people. He's making that evident again 
in the birth story. I hope that I've never engaged in that kind of sinful behavior, but I also never want to be deluded by my ability to judge people by their appearances. It's something we always have to be cautious about. They've actually started doing um, auditions for orchestras behind a veil because they've noticed that that's the only way they will oftentimes hire women for jobs. It's when they're not looking at the person doing the audition. It's important that we match our own values with God. That, that is not an easy thing to do. But see, if we in any way categorize ourselves as being a church of only a certain socioeconomic status, you know what we would have to do? We'd have to take the word church off the sign. We could put club there. We could put something else. But that's not what the church is. See, God values all kinds of people, and we're called to love all kinds of people. So three values of God that we find woven into this story um, of Christ's birth, his value of obedience, his value of humility, and his value for all kinds of people. So in closing, how do we sum up a life like this, a life that had such humble beginnings, a life that began in a stable, a life that began um, with some confusion, a life that began with an announcement to the most common of people? There was an essay written uh, by a pastor by the name of Francis Allen. And you may have seen this before, but he goes into summing up the life of Christ. And he said this, he said, here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Now, there's more to this story than what was just shared. And if we could, I'd like for everyone to take a moment to bow their head and close their eyes. We just heard about this humble birth and this amazing life of Jesus Christ. And the most amazing part about it is that he wishes to have a relationship with each and every one of us. God values you and I so much that he gave his son Jesus to die for us. This good news, this great hope of joy and peace, it's available to you right now, right there where you're sitting. It's a gift, and you've got to accept it by faith. And what I hope is very clear to you this morning is that Jesus did for you and I what we could never have done for ourselves. He came to earth to die for our sins. 
He came to earth to provide you and I a way to be completely forgiven of anything we've done in our past so we can enjoy a life with him forever. If you're ready to accept that gift, if you believe that Jesus was and is fully God and he came to die on the cross for your sins and then was brought back to life, I would like to, I would like to invite you to say this prayer right now. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed, please, please say this. In your heart, you're speaking directly to the Lord. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died for me. And I'm putting my trust in the saving work that you have done for me. Now, if you believe these things to be true about Christ, if you've, if you've said that prayer this morning, then today can be the day that Jesus Christ becomes your Lord. If you would, please open your eyes and look at me now. I heard some of you say that. <clears throat> if you said that this morning, if this was your, the first time you had ever heard the gospel, the first time you'd put your trust in Christ, I would invite you to get in touch with me. Um, you, can, you can email me. I would like to give you some things to get you started on this journey with Christ. Uh, I've got some things for you to read, some things for you to look over, but if you send me a message or contact the church, um, I'll be in touch with you. Um, please pray with me. Lord God, I thank you for everyone here today. Lord, I thank you for those who may have made a first-time decision. Lord, we are so thankful that you came to earth, that you put on humanity to die for us. Lord, that is the Christmas story. Coming in and reversing that which Satan has corrupted. God, help us to keep that on our hearts and minds throughout this Christmas season. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Let us go from this place proclaiming that we have seen the glory of God, believing that there is light that shines in the darkness which the darkness shall not overcome. And may the love of the Creator, the joy of the Spirit, and the peace of the Christ child be with you this Christmas and evermore. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. You're